FX Medicine is your gateway to news, resources and information on the safe, evidence-based approach to practising complementary and integrative medicine. Visit fxmedicine.com.au to sign up for e-news and stay up to date with the latest research, podcasts and industry information. This podcast was brought to you by the book The Hashimoto's Protocol by Dr. Isabella Wentz. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Isabella Wendt is an internationally acclaimed thyroid specialist and a licensed pharmacist who's dedicated her career to addressing the root causes of autoimmune thyroid disease after being diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis in 2009. Dr. Wentz is the author of the New York Times best-selling patient guide, Hashimoto's Thyroiditis, Lifestyle Interventions for Finding and Treating the Root Cause and the recently released protocol-based book Hashimoto's Protocol, a 90-day plan for reversing thyroid symptoms and getting your life back. As a patient advocate, researcher, clinician and educator, Dr. Wentz is committed to raising awareness on how to overcome autoimmune thyroid disease through the Thyroid Secret documentary series, the Hashimoto's Institute Practitioner Training and her international consulting and speaking services offered to both patients and healthcare professionals. Warmly welcome you, Isabella, to FX Medicine. How are you? Andrew, thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. Now, I think we're going to jump straight into it because you've got a lot to cover. This is such an in-depth topic and it's broad. You don't just talk about the thyroid, which I love. So you've got a bit of an incredible insight into Hashimoto's having navigated it yourself. But let's First, go back to your your pharmacy training and your background. What first happened in in pharmacy to alert you to the real issues of Hashimoto's? You know, truth be told, I was never interested in the thyroid or Hashimoto's when I was going through my pharmacy training. So I learned during pharmacy school that thyroid disease is something that just sort of happened and that you were to just take thyroid medications if you had an underactive thyroid and suppress your thyroid function or take radioactive iodine if you had an overactive thyroid. And that was pretty much all I learned. I had one lecture on thyroid disorders in four years. It wasn't until I was diagnosed myself in 2009 is when I really started to become a thyroid expert slash human guinea pig. And that was really to take back my own health. I really didn't understand the complexity of thyroid disease during my training. It was you have this condition, there's a pill for it. And that, that's pretty much it. You, you've spoken about the wounded healer, and I think this is a really important concept. Those practitioners that have an issue themselves and have overcome it or managed it successfully, they seem to be the ones that have the true passion to help others to do so themselves as well. So from your diagnosis, you began to take that keen interest um, from a functional medicine approach, though. So... Why functional medicine? What twigged you that standard pharmaceuticals weren't working? Well, it was I, I learned about lifestyle changes during pharmacy school, of course, and 
even though they weren't quite to the degree of functional medicine changes, at least we were doing some sort of lip service where if somebody was having high blood pressure or diabetes, we were saying, well, you should lose weight. And when I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's, this was after almost a decade of some pretty debilitating fatigue, acid reflux, irritable bowel syndrome, carpal tunnel, hair loss, panic attacks, you name it, I had it. Um, I, I thought I was doing everything right. I was like, I'm not overeating. I'm eating whole wheat. I'm eating low fat dairy. I'm exercising. I'm not smoking. I'm not drinking. What is going on? I'm trying to be the healthiest person that I know to be, right? I, I, I don't smoke. And why am I developing this condition that older women were supposed to develop? And why is my body attacking itself? It, it didn't really make sense to me that I had this autoimmune imbalance within my body and that all I was doing was taking more hormones for it. Sure, the hormones could help, but I was like, well, my body's under attack. Don't we want to stop the attack rather than just take hormones um, or in addition to? And so that started my journey. And at the time, I was working as a consultant pharmacist for people who had a lot of um, complicated health issues. So they were usually people with disabilities, with multiple chronic health conditions. And the team that I was working on was charged with advocating for them. And so I was always looking outside the box for my clients to try to figure out why they were not feeling their best mm. and if there was anything that could be done for them. And I started utilizing that same methodology for myself. Um, a lot of my clients had conditions that were not traditional conditions. So we had clients with Down syndrome and there was not you know, the standard of care for that condition. And so I was always looking at PubMed and I was always looking at patient forms to try to find out if we could research or find out any of the latest and innovative therapies that could help them as well as any anything that the parents or um, caregivers were, were reporting to be helpful. So I started utilizing that for Hashimoto's as well. And I was really like interested in what caused the condition. And if, if I could figure out the cause, then maybe I could reverse it or at least feel better, right? This is the thing that really interests me is given that the standard of care either isn't there or it doesn't um, reach the acceptability of what patients are, are wanting for control of their disease, isn't evidence-based medicine supposed to direct a healthcare practitioner to going down the levels of evidence? If, you, if you've wasted the, the top echelon, you go down to the next level. If you've wasted that, you go down to the next level. At the end of the, the day, what you want is for Mrs. Jones to feel better. So this is what really stuns me about many clinicians that don't look further. Like, what's their paradigm? What is it? Are they just stuck in a box? Or, like, what do you feel when you're talking to colleagues that don't believe in integrative medicine? It's a little bit challenging for me to speak to people who don't believe that because they have this air of skepticism. And, and a lot of times the reason I'm talking to them is because they're having some sort of health challenges themselves, yeah. right? And so they're coming to me and they're curious, but at the same time, it, it, to them, it's just, it, it's almost like, well, if food made a difference, why didn't I learn about it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, if, if supplements or vitamins actually worked, why did I not learn about this in my four years of medical school, four years of pharmacy school, residency, nursing school, so on and so forth. And it's, you know, natural, I, I feel, for them to be skeptical because they've never been trained in it. Mm. And um, they're often disregarding it, but it, it, it's going back to 
you know, you can only manage what you measure and they're not really measuring these things. So a lot of times we'll say, um, I'll also have clients that'll say, or readers that say, I went to my endocrinologist and he said, I don't need to change my diet. And then my question is always, well, has the endocrinologist monitored people that went gluten-free mm. and the thyroid disease and seen the results? And, and my encouragement is always for people just to give it a try. They can always go back to how they were before. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the, that's the great thing about integrative medicine is that you've got to be really, really silly to be unsafe with it. <laughs> so let's go delve into the thyroid itself. What happens in Hashimoto's? And, you know, tell us a little bit about the thyroid itself. What makes it such an, an efficient pump for metabolism? So our thyroid gland is, is this tiny little gland at the base of our neck, and it is in charge of our metabolism. It's in charge of producing thyroid hormones that impact every single cell in the body. And um, when the thyroid is out of balance, we can feel it pretty much on every every cell. So we might see a person who has um, Hashimoto's or an underactive thyroid, they might have anything from hair loss to the top of their head to tingling at the bottom of their feet. Mm. And it's one of those um, conditions that can be very nonspecific. In thyroid disease, um, when we have an underactive thyroid, essentially the thyroid gland is not able to produce enough thyroid hormone to supply the body with enough hormone. And um, this is when a hypothyroid state develops. Yeah. Hashimoto's is the most common cause of thyroid disease. Worldwide, or I'm sorry, in countries that add iodine to the salt supply, so in developed countries, and we find that what what's essentially happening in Hashimoto's is the immune system begins to recognize the thyroid gland as a foreign invader, begins to launch an attack against the thyroid gland, right? Eventually destroying it. And I said the word pump before, but because the the thyroid is quite an efficient manufacturer of thyroid hormone, is it true that? not like 90% of the thyroid can be damaged and you still can produce enough thyroid hormone, but then there's that tipping point. Is that what happens or does it tend to vacillate while it's being damaged? It can definitely vacillate as it's being damaged. What we what we see generally is um, probably for the first 10 years that a person has Hashimoto's, they may still be able to compensate, quote unquote, and produce enough thyroid hormone, but at the same time, they're going to be symptomatic. So the tests will say that they're new thyroid, but their body will not reveal the same thing, right? So they're, when, when we talk to these um, clients or patients, we find that they're feeling anxious. We find that they're feeling depressed. They're feeling more tired. They're maybe mm. having trouble with weight gain and some COVID tolerance. So there's going to be some degree of symptom, symptoms even when the thyroid gland is not fully destroyed, just in the stages where it's being attacked by the immune system, we'll still be very, we can still be very symptomatic. So is that evidence of you know, interleukins, that the cytokines that are produced, that are causing this issue, that, that they have um, systemic effects, or is there some other mechanism there? Definitely that could be a part of the mechanism. Um, some of the research suggests that it is um, when the thyroid gland is under attack, um, when we have breakdown of thyroid cells, the cells get um, the thyroid hormone gets rushed into the bloodstream, and that may produce anxiety symptoms. So th there's various mechanisms from inflammation, interleukins, to actually physical um, destruction of the thyroid gland that leads to some dumping of thyroid hormone into the bloodstream. Okay, and you speak about Hashimoto's in five stages. Can you take us through these stages and and what defines them? 
Of course. Um, the very first stage of Hashimoto's is just having the genetic predisposition for the condition. So if, if somebody has um, a relative, a mother or father, even a grandmother with Hashimoto's, they're going to be potentially in stage one because they have the genes where, given the right circumstances, they're not even started to attack their thyroid gland. For all intents and purposes, stage one, there's no symptoms, there's no attack on the thyroid gland, thyroid hormones are normal. At this stage, we're thinking about prevention, right? The stage two of Hashimoto's is when the autoimmune attack begins on the thyroid gland. So this begins with white blood cell infiltration into the thyroid gland. And this is actually the stage where we start seeing thyroid antibodies. So thyroid peroxidase, thyroglobulin antibodies are the most common ones. And then we also start seeing symptoms. The most common symptoms at this stage are actually going to be um, anxiety-related. So oftentimes, patients will be misdiagnosed with um, an anxiety disorder, maybe depression, or some other kind of mood-related disorder. Um, At this stage, we may also see other symptoms. Um, Miscarriages are actually a potential symptom at this stage as well. The stage, um, but TSH will still be normal. T3 and T4 levels will still be normal. Stage 3 is the progression of the condition where we start seeing that more and more the, the thyroid gland is damaged. This is known as subclinical hypothyroidism. At this stage, we'll still have thyroid antibodies. Um, T3 and T4 will still be normal. People will generally be more symptomatic, and a telltale sign will be that the TSH will be elevated. Generally, up to 10 is considered above, you know, above 3, up to 10 may be considered subclinical hypothyroidism. Right. Stage 4 is when we have progression into overt hypothyroidism. So at this stage, the thyroid gland has been damaged to the point, you know, maybe it's 80%, 90% depends on the person, where the thyroid gland can no longer compensate and can no longer produce enough thyroid hormones. So we'll see a, a rise in TSH again, and then free T3, free T4 will be low, and we'll also see um, the thyroid antibodies again, and we'll also see a person with more and more symptoms. Gotcha. Um, this is generally the stage when most patients are diagnosed and generally when they're prescribed thyroid hormones. Right. Stage 5 Now, this is when it gets scary because stage five is actually progression into other types of autoimmune conditions. And so um, generally, by the time a person gets to stage five, they um, will will be treated with thyroid hormones. But if they're not, again, their TSH would be elevated, their T3, T4 would be um, low, and then we would also see um, the thyroid antibodies, and then we would also see thyroid symptoms as well as symptoms of additional autoimmune condition and perhaps some lab markers of an additional autoimmune condition. Um, one thing I should mention, though, is that there is something known as seronegative Hashimoto's, right. where we don't have thyroid antibodies at all. Ah. This, um, this is thought to be slower, um, less progressive. Um, on average, with the thyroid antibodies we see, it takes about 10 years to get from stage 2 to stage 4. And so... To me, this is the normal standard model of care that if you just gave thyroid hormones, that you're looking down the barrel of a progression to autoimmune in a large number of cases. So is is that right? Or like what, what percentage of patients progress to overt autoimmune can other conditions? I don't have the statistics on how many progress or how many, um, actually how long it takes. Hmm. It can vary per patient. What we do know is 
the higher the thyroid antibody numbers, the more aggressive the attack on the thyroid and the more progressive the condition is thought to be. Gotcha. And so um, those are some potential things to consider that if you have a, a client or patient with really high thyroid antibodies, that would be somebody that I would be concerned with progressing to other types of autoimmunity. Right. And and just, I guess, going a little bit further back, um, looking at triggers, um, infections and things like that, and certainly stress um, seems to be one of the biggest triggers to me. What's your what's your research and experience show? What's interesting is Graves' disease has long been connected with stress. And there was a, a case of a woman who was pushed in her wheelchair down a flight of stairs, or perhaps she fell. And that was when she initially des- developed Graves' disease symptoms. Wow. Because Hashimoto's takes such a long time to develop, clinicians have had a difficult time creating a correlation or a timeline in, yep. in the research. But generally speaking, when I talk to my clients, about 70% of them report that they were under significant stress before their autoimmune thyroid condition developed. And um, female to male ratio? So for every man that's diagnosed, we're looking at five to eight women. Wow. So obviously there's other things involved, you know, one would immediately point the finger to hormones, but there's a lot of, I think there's, there's a lot of um, cultural things in there as well. Like for instance, how women carry the load of stress. They carry the, not just a, very often these days, the work, but also the home work as well. Um, and the family upbringing and, and I'm being a little bit sexist, I think a little bit um, stereotypical, but women really are the nurturers and they take so much on. Do you think this is to their detriment? Is like, do, do, do men really have to man up and say, hey, listen, I'll, I'll take the load off you? And, and do, <laughs> does that play a big role in treatment? Like, does it help? You know, I really, really love this question. It, it's such an important question. I actually have a theory known as the safety theory of why more women develop autoimmune thyroid disease. Yeah. And it really goes back to adaptive physiology. We think about what the role of our body is. Our body is always trying to get us to survive, right? And so whenever we're having a significant amount of stress, um, wherever we're having um, something going on that stresses us out in the modern world, um, I like to think about how would a cave woman respond to that, right? <laughs> and so we know that the thyroid gland is an environmental sensing gland. The thyroid gland, the research shows, can actually detect um, damage and danger within its environment and then send out signals to the rest of the body when um, when it's sensing danger. And so in a period where um, a cave woman would be stressed, this would usually be because of something serious, right? It wouldn't be because of a tax deadline or because of a, of traffic on the road. It would usually be because she was being um, chased by a bear because she was um, under a, a situation where she didn't have enough food, or perhaps there was um, some trouble within her her village or where she was living, where it was a, a hostile situation. And so, what's interesting is it actually there's there's some studies that um, have pointed to survivors of, um, of prisoners of war, survivors of sexual assault, survivors of physical abuse, and even survivors of famines, generally they're going to have higher rates of hypothyroidism. Right. And um, what's interesting is that hypothyroidism can play a protective role where if our metabolism is slower, 
right? And we're in a famine. We don't need to eat as much, so that helps us survive the famine. If we are in a situation where we're um, perhaps being physically abused, um, having a hypothyroid condition may actually slow down our metabolism to the point where we're more likely to withdraw and hide Mm. versus being out and about and um, be at risk. What's really interesting is that um, hibernating bears actually have lower amounts of thyroid hormones um, that are circulating at the time that they're hibernating. And so so all this to say is, is essentially stress can be very, very important in developing thyroid disease. Yes, hormones can play a role. Um, personal care products can certainly play a role because um, women put twice as many on as men do, and they often have hormone-disrupting chemicals in them. Yep. But I also think, um, you know, being a woman in our modern world is more stressful or uh, more, I guess, danger-provoking where we don't feel safe compared to being a man. Um, just to give you an example, I could quote a lot of research studies and whatnot, but there's a dating app called Tinder that's popular among um, young people. Mm-hmm. And um, what the the app's founders, they did a survey with their users, and they asked the females what was their biggest fear in using the dating app. And the women replied that their biggest fear was that the man that they met was going to be a psychopath yeah. and hurt them. Yeah. Um, do you know what the biggest fear the men had? What? That the women that they met in real life were not going to be as pretty as they were in their pictures. Mm, yeah. It, doesn't so, that speak you know, volumes? That, that sort of, <laughs> that, yeah, and that's just how our culture is, where it's just not as safe to be a woman um, as it is a man. I know if I was to ever walk alone at night, I would be looking around and making sure I was I was safe versus my husband would not have that same kind of um, fear response. And going back to, uh, you know, manning up, I, I do find that a lot of my female clients who have supportive husbands are usually the ones that get better and that have the mm. best type of outcomes for recovering their health versus the women that are fighting against their husbands and families yeah. to, to get better, right? Um, so what about things like you, you mentioned endocrine disrupting chemicals? So the toxic load stress, this surely would be an ever increasing issue in particularly developed countries. You know, absolutely. And there's, there's just, there's so many examples, but two of them that really come to mind are going to be fluoride and the water supply. So a lot of communities are Placing fluoride in the water supply, and this is very prevalent in the United States and then parts of the UK. And in the UK, they actually found that the communities that had higher levels of fluoride in the water supply had higher levels of thyroid disease. Right. Um, and hypothyroidism specifically. So fluoride can actually be used as a thyroid suppressing chemical, um, and the doses of that are going to be, you know, comparable to drinking six to eight cups of water on a daily basis. It's also added to our toothpaste. Um, triclosan is another chemical that's added to um, soaps as well as toothpaste. And this this is also something that's recently been told in America by the FDA because of its thyroid-disrupting properties. And there's um, BPA, which is found in plastics, and then BPS, which is another chemical um, that's similar to BPA that's found in plastics, may also have thyroid-disrupting properties. And then we have all of the hormones that act on estrogen, whenever we have more estrogen in the body, that means um, we're binding more thyroid hormone, and that means we need to produce more thyroid hormone. If we don't have enough nutrients on board and enough anti-inflammatory um, compounds, we, producing thyroid hormones can be inflammatory 
and can actually initiate the autoimmune attack on the thyroid gland as well. So it's it's a, a really whole um, a bit of a mess that we've gotten ourselves into with with all the fragrance products and all the potions and lotions that we put on our skin day in and day out. Yeah, one of the the things that that tweaked my interest then, where um, or before, when you're talking about bears going into hibernation and having lower thyroid hormones, is one of the issues with modern day society that we don't have any cyclical or seasonal um, behaviour changes. We don't do less and, and do, you know, let's say more chores that would keep us warm in winter um, and, you know, get out and play in summer, that sort of thing, you know. Um, it, do you find that that non-cyclical pace of modern day life is one of the biggest issues? I do feel like it's very much contributing where we find, um, you know, we have these expectations to perform and if we're tired, Instead of resting, we reach for you know a coffee, yeah. or a soda, or or something caffeinated to keep ourselves going. Where we have this lack of communication with our bodies, right? And so instead of listening to our body when it says, "Hey, I'm tired, I need more rest," yeah. perhaps this is the season where I should be resting more and regenerating more. Um, we, we kind of push against it. Yeah. And, you know, foods, I guess, are also in there because we have, we want to have an apple in winter these days. Um, so, that, you know, it seems to me this huge issue that we just don't eat seasonally anymore. We don't have the sort of, you know, fruits and leafy vegetables that are available in summer. In summer, <laughs> we have them all year round. Certainly. And I feel like the the variety within our diet, so we find that with Hashimoto's, we have um, a lot of food sensitivities that the, the triggers are going to be toxins, nutrient deficiencies, impaired stress response, chronic infections, intestinal permeability, as well as food sensitivities. And when you're constantly eating the same food over and over and over again, um, you can develop a food sensitivity to it that just, um, you know, the more you eat it. And so actually, one of the things that I recommend for people with advanced thyroid disease, I may even recommend a rotation diet when they will rotate through foods um, even within a 24-hour period right. because um, they've been eating. Chicken is not a common sensitivity, but if, if all you've been eating is chicken yep. the last few years, you may even be sensitive to chicken. Um, just one other thing that's going back to the correlation with activity, with seasonality and when you were talking about um, uh, bears going into hibernation and having low thyroid, and in my mind, I'm just wondering about, is there any correlation with th low thyroid hormones and greater weight and even greater weight signaling hormones? Like, for instance, you know, alpha melanocyte stimulating hormone or, you know, the OB gene or the DB gene, these sort of things that have a that um, sway people to a propensity for weight gain. Um, is there any correlation between the thyroid hormones and the weight-controlling hormones or genes, indeed? I haven't seen any specific research to the various genes that are correlated with um, thyroid hormones. And I, I, quite honestly, I think I have a little bit of a radical um, thought on this based on the research that was done with um, people who are exposed to Chernobyl within a certain age range, if they were living within a certain proximity to Chernobyl, 
80% of children develop thyroid antibodies. Yeah. So for me, I don't necessarily uh, believe that, that it's only a certain amount of people have these genes. I actually believe that the majority of us, um, given the right environmental triggers, will develop Hashimoto's as a protective mechanism. So, so this is you know, my personal theory on yeah. that, and I don't necessarily subscribe to the various genes because I feel like we're constantly finding new genes that are associated with Hashimoto's. And I, I actually uh-huh. believe it's an underlying um, protective mechanism that the body um, that the body expresses. Right. And for some people, they might have a easier propensity to express that where others might need a stronger trigger. Okay, but you mentioned Chernobyl, um, radioactivity. Um, there's a big issue there. What about somewhere where there isn't a radioactive you know, stress or call it a stress or a radioactive isotope um, being released that, that damages the thyroid. Is there any other examples like, for instance, um, uh, I don't know whether anybody would go in there to actually assay it, but let's say, you know, a war-torn area like Syria you know, or um, Syrian refugees, do they have a greater propensity for thyroid disease as well as a stress-related response? I haven't seen any research connecting that. What I have seen is um, we're looking at people who were in industrial settings, so people who lived closer to factories that were producing um, halogenated chemicals. They're going to have higher rates of thyroid disease. People who were um, in busier cities exposed to more toxins right. have higher rates of thyroid disease. So we're seeing that. Um, and, and interestingly, people with sleep apnea, which um, ah. I consider an environmental stressor, they're going to have much higher rates of autoimmune thyroid disease as well. Oh, okay. um, I haven't seen specifically anything in war-torn areas, but we have seen some studies with prisoners of war who actually end up having um, hypothyroidism. Gotcha. And that is thought to be a protective mechanism. Right. Um Moving on to testing now, because um, this is such an area of contention. You know, an endocrinologist will only do a certain amount of testing and that's it. They're normal. See you later. Goodbye. And they, there's a lot of practitioners in Australia that have gotten in trouble, um, particularly medical practitioners, um, for doing tests outside the black box of what is appropriate, quote unquote. Can you take our listeners, in particular medicos, who are still focused on the THS, sorry, TSH and, you know, maybe mm-hmm. T3, T4, why these other tests, like looking for antibodies and look, maybe doing an ultrasound, looking at cytology, um, why they're so important? I mean, I know this is a whole seminar in itself, but <laughs> what is it that, what are the main, say, five factors that, that we need to really change? Well, you know, it, and it kind of, I get riled up when where people talk about testing the TSH, and then if only the TSH is elevated, will they test antibodies? But if you know enough about Hashimoto's, you know that the antibodies come first, yeah. and then the change in TSH might come one year Way later, down. five yeah. years later, 10 years, 20 years later. So it, it just, to me, it's, it's so backwards. And I feel like people, um, every clinician should start with the thyroid antibodies because we have a better opportunity to help the patient prevent 10 years of symptoms and 10 years of being told that they're crazy. And we can potentially even reverse the condition and prevent the need for thyroid hormones if we can prevent the damage to the thyroid gland. So thyroid antibodies, I feel like that should be a standard of care um, for men, women, children. That, and they're not expensive tests, and they can help predict 
so many different fertility issues, mental health issues, and if we address the antibodies and, and lower them, we the condition isn't as progressive, right? And the symptoms oftentimes resolve. And sometimes we can go into complete remission. Now, um, the ultrasound, because here's, here's the, the thing, though. Not everybody will have Hashimoto's antibodies, yeah. Yeah. but they'll have Hashimoto's. And so there's ferro-negative Hashimoto's where we see that the thyroid gland is under attack, so we're not testing positive for antibodies. There may be other types of antibodies that clinically we're not testing for. They, they may not have, researchers have discovered different types of antibodies, but we're not testing for them, and some of them may be positive. Um, and there's some antibodies that we may not even know about that are expressed. But thyroid ultrasounds are a great way to figure out if there are changes consistent with Hashimoto's on the thyroid gland. So we will see, um, you know, more damage and scar tissue and a, more of a rubbery texture when a person has Hashimoto's. And right. so thyroid ultrasounds can discover another set of, of Hashimoto's. And, of course, they can discover um, thyroid nodules, thyroid cysts, and any kind of other issues that need to be closely monitored or investigated. And then with cytology, we're looking at discovering additional cases of thyroid disease in Hashimoto's. So um, based on various antibody test studies, you know, we're looking at 13% of the population having Hashimoto's or so in the U.S., but looking at cytology, we're seeing 27% wow. of people within the U.S. with Hashimoto's. And oftentimes it might be an earlier stage or it may be a case of misdiagnosis where the person is is not treated appropriately because they um, they don't know that they have a thyroid condition, right? When would it be appropriate to do like an extra test, for instance, cytology or ultrasound? When would it be appropriate to be suspicious enough to say, I would recommend this? Do you merely go on symptoms or do you look at um, other tests that might give you a clue as to what's going on first? In my opinion, I would recommend um, that anybody that presents to um, a clinician's office that they should be screened for thyroid antibody tests and at least once every five years, if all things are normal, have a thyroid ultrasound, just to even have a baseline thyroid ultrasound to see gotcha. um, what's changing within the thyroid gland. And um, of course, I would we're talking about preventative medicine at this point, with cytology, because it is more invasive, this is something that would be recommended generally when you have um, nodules that you um, that are suspicious looking. So I, I wouldn't say that everybody with a thyroid gland should have um, a needle stuck in it to see if, if Hashimoto's is in there, right? But um, it's definitely something that if you're already doing an assessment of the nodules, then it may be wise to to see if there are, you know, white blood cells consistent with Hashimoto's in the cells as well. Yeah. What about the simplest of tests, like taking temperature, for instance? Because this is my understanding, and please correct me if I'm incorrect, if I'm wrong, is that the thyroid hormones are produced by the thyroid, but they don't really give you a sensitive indication of how well they're working at the tissue level. And that even the simplest of tests like temperature is actually looking for your basal metabolic rate. Granted that there's more sensitive and complicated tests that you can do, but what about just taking a regular temperature for those people that you suspect? I think definitely taking temperature is, is an important part of um, the signs and symptoms that should be evaluated. 
the only hesitation I have as far as thyroid hormone treatment, you know, like everything that I recommend in Hashimoto's protocol can be done based on a temperature test. Mm-hmm. However, with starting thyroid hormones, you know, I would want to have more advanced testing. The, the reason sure. I hesitate is because the temperature test, this can also reveal adrenal issues. Uh-huh, right? So a right. person with, um, with underactive adrenals can also have, um, have low temperature. And if we just treat their thyroid hormone um, and they have low cortisol, um, and we give them thyroid hormones, then they start excreting cortisol at a greater rate, and we can make the adrenal issue worse. Of course, Addison being the um, the most um, problematic example here, but also people with just cortisolism, we can run into that too. So that that would be my only hesitation: is yeah, you know, if if um, you could use it for doing all the protocols, but um, if you're going to prescribe thyroid hormones, let's get some some more evidence on paper, and, yeah. and perhaps. Let's also test adrenals, which would be my idea is if adrenals and the thyroid gland were tested and figuring out, um, starting perhaps um, support on both ends. Yeah. So in my mind, I'm trying to form a treatment picture here. Um, so low, th- low temperature really would be a guide for you to be suspicious and therefore do further testing, not as a guide to treat. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's what's causing the low temperature. That could be thyroid. That could be adrenals. Um, you know, perhaps there are other conditions that could be associated with it, but definitely that's an important sign to look out for. Yeah. One of the topics that piqued my interest in your book was grieving your diagnosis. And and it really, it, it really hit me. I, um, I think it's quite profound, you know, and a bit of a wake up call for me personally, when dealing with any patient's new diagnosis, any patients, if it's alien to them, particularly, obviously, if it's very serious, we get that. But what if it's something that we as a clinician deal with day in, day out, but to them, it could be quite devastating. How do you lead people through grieving versus the logical, oh, yes, I have a condition now, you know? What do you find people go through? You know, people go through um, it, it, such a struggle because generally the clinician, I think a lot of clinicians are very proud of themselves when they get a diagnosis, right? And they're excited and they're sharing this diagnosis with the patient. And for the patient, that may be overwhelming and devastating. They don't know what Hashimoto's is. They don't, they sound, you know, they think they're going to die in in five days when you, when you say the word Hashimoto's and a lot of times, because it's not a household name and then, you know, their immune system is attacking themselves and then they, read on the internet about all the potential complications and there's always forums of patients who just never get better, right? Yeah. And so it can be quite scary. And, you know, for me, what I do is is I just encourage everybody to give themselves that permission to grieve their diagnosis and just think think of how they would react if this was like a dear friend or loved one or, you know, a daughter or or even like a pet, right? It's just Show yourself some some compassion, and it's okay. It's okay to be upset. It's you don't have to toughen up and ignore it. You know, like just um, show yourself some humanity and some compassion. Yeah, I, I think th- this is one of the big wake up calls. Is when you know we're so used to dealing with these terms, with these conditions with names of drugs, with names of herbs and nutrients, and they can be quite alien 
to somebody. I constantly get railed back, um, sorry, reined in by my family when I go off on a rant of explaining things. I say, you've gone into your mind again, come back, you know? And I think it's really important for us as clinicians to realize that people, lay people don't have the understanding that we do and that we need to bring it down to the common denominator about what it means for them and be constantly on the lookout for that and how it affects them. So the four fundamental stages of treatment in your book, obviously the pervading theme here is stress. Um, but one of the interesting things um, I picked up in your book was, as well was to look at the simplest things as well, like iron. Don't forget these really simple underlying things that not necessarily govern metabolism, but help you cope with metabolism, with the metabolic processes. So how do you regain resilience or indeed, how does one attain resilience if they've not got it? And I guess the big question there is, how resilient is resilience? <laughs> what about long-term effects of treatment or long-term successes? So when I first started working with clients and working on my own health, it was kind of addressing individual triggers and addressing going after various infections and, and individual root causes. And that can be helpful. Um, until, you know, you have a stressful event and something else happens. And, you know, I, I've had a lot of clients and, and some of them have been very successful. And then I've had some that have taught me a lot because, you know, we would keep going back and, you know, we, we, we get into remission and then the person would get sick again and we treat one infection and they'd get another infection, right? And so that goes back to resilience and how you build your body up so it's, um, you know, you're not going to be necessarily Superman, Clark Kent, but mm. you can be less susceptible to getting a gut infection every time you go out on a vacation. Um, and how do you do those things? And and you're going to you're not going to be as stressed out by your environment. Mm. And the best way to do that is, is support our own body's natural defenses for resilience. So how does our body stay resilient? So the first way is by getting rid of toxins and having a way to process them out so that we're sort of filtering out what's supposed to be in the body and what's not. Um, the liver is, is a key organ in this, but also the skin is a key organ, elimination organ, yeah. um, as is the gut. Now, with Hashimoto's, we oftentimes have a person with a toxic backlog in their liver, and so they're not sweating enough because hypothyroidism causes low sweating. Their gut is always impaired, so they're not clearing toxins out that way. They have circulating immune complexes that form to the thyroid antibodies, and everything sort of gets stuck on the poor old liver. And so the way to support that is to sweat more and to try to clear out some of that toxic burden. This will make a person less sensitive to their day-to-day -day stressors. But the way I think of it is it's sort of, um, you know, like a an overflowing bucket. When you've got so much toxicity within your body, even the smallest stressors will stress you out. So that's yeah. the first um, part of it. The second big part is the adrenal hormone. And so I always tell my clients that the way to make other people less annoying and more tolerable is to support your adrenals. <laughs> and, and Adrenal you know, treatment like for all women. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Um, your boss could stress you out. Your kids could stress you out. You know, various things could be stressful in your environment. And when you really um, support your adrenals, and a lot of it, it goes back to just good old self-care, getting enough sleep, um, being kind to yourself, saying nice things to yourself, and 
I love adrenal adaptogens, of course, um, and targeted nutrients, but you find that the world becomes an easier place to tolerate and you don't get as stressed out. And maybe, um, you know, maybe you don't get into that fight with your, with your husband, or maybe you don't get angry and that doesn't lower your own immune defenses. Cause we know when we're upset, um, that puts our body in that fight or flight yeah. and takes us out of the rest and digest. Right. Yeah. Um, and then the third most important pathway is the gut. And so we know that, um, the gut plays a really important role in every case of autoimmune disease and thyroid is no different. In fact, um, thyroid cells and gut cells have the same fetal origin, but when we support the gut properly and we make it more resilient, we, we find that we see improvements in, um, in thyroid function and definitely thyroid symptoms. One of, one of my favorite things for, um, clearing out gut infections, which can cause the intestinal permeability and preventing new ones is utilizing probiotics, um, such as sarcomyces boulardii. Um, this can help eradicate pathogenic, um, some pathogenic infections and it can prevent new ones. So, you know, definitely for clients, whenever I have clients that are traveling, I'll tell them to double up on that so that more secretory IgA is produced to protect their gut from, from oncoming pathogens and digestive enzymes can help us break down our food into smaller pieces so that it's not as antigenic for us and perhaps kill off some of the potential pathogens that may be on our food. Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad that you talk, I, I was going to say highly, but um, let's say deeply, um, around, uh, around the gut being an important treatment um, area because I remember years ago reading something about glucomannan reducing thyroid antibodies. And I, you know, we always think about, oh, they're, they're the thyroid antibodies, so they're in the thyroid and the blood. We don't think about how our body gets rid of things. What about over versus under treatment? How do you gauge treatment-related symptoms, um, the, you know, as being a warning sign for over-treatment, say, versus the normal vacillation of the disease progress, i.e., your treatment isn't doing anything and the disease is just vacillating as it would? How do you say, aha, I'm on the right track versus what am I doing here? You know, this is a question I commonly get and, and you know, people will say, oh, well, doesn't, don't the thyroid antibodies go away when the thyroid gland is fully damaged, right? When the thyroid gland is gone. Um, but I actually do like thyroid antibodies as a potential measure, mm. a marker for seeing improvement. So yep. um, how do we know that a change is an improvement? And we're looking at um, thyroid antibodies and symptoms and we're, we're trying to draw a correlation with that. Um, course, everybody is different, but there are certain things that are fundamental for most people with Hashimoto's. Um, 88% of people feel significantly better on a gluten-free diet. 80% feel better on a dairy-free diet. And we'll see reductions in antibodies as well. Selenium is a, is a very helpful nutrient. So there's some fundamentals that we can always do to determine if, um, to, to help a person improve. And, and again, I'm looking at symptoms and then tracking antibodies and tracking lab markers as well. Yeah. And I've got to cover the issue of iodine, you know, particularly in Australia where we've got a marginal to mild deficiency, at least in the eastern states, um, to the point where all pregnant women in Australia are recommended to have an, a supplement even though we've got fortified foods now. Bread is, is fortified with iodine. Um, all pregnant women are... Um, 
I'd, I'd say the word mandated, but th there's guidelines to give all pregnant women a supplement as well as the fortified foods of 150 micrograms of iodine during pregnancy. What about the issue of iodine? How high can you go? How, what sort of silly doses do you see used by some practitioners? I've got some concerns with some, but, and what are the risks with iodine with regards to Hashimoto's? You know, iodine is such a controversial topic when it comes to Hashimoto's and, you know, the, the kind of the origin of, of iodine used as a treatment is, it makes a lot of sense because iodine can, is a part of um, thyroid hormone and back, you know, back before we had iodine fortification, um, the primary reason, and it's actually the primary reason worldwide for hypothyroidism, was iodine deficiency. And so very much so um, if you are, if you have iodine deficiency hypothyroidism, taking iodine will help, right? It, it's pretty, pretty simple. Um, where it gets a little bit more complicated is that researchers have found that in countries that started adding iodine to the salt supply, we see less iodine deficiency, but we see more autoimmune thyroid disease. And so now iodine excess has been determined to be a potential environmental trigger for Hashimoto's. Um, generally, looking, combing through all the research and trying to come up with an answer um, for this for my clients, um, generally, you don't want to do more than 300 micrograms of iodine if you have Hashimoto's and TPO antibodies. Gotcha. Now, um, there are some people that have taken iodine with Hashimoto's and taken really high doses, and um, it actually helps them. However, what unfortunately I've seen is that there's a certain amount of people where they're given milligrams, like five milligrams, 50 milligrams, and, and note that the recommended daily dose is in micrograms, right? And um, I've seen their TSH go up to the 100 level when it was maybe, you know, 8 to 10. Yeah. Um, I've seen their thyroid antibodies go up to the 1,000 level. Um, wow. One woman had a T4 that was nearly zero, and she was bedridden, where before it was like she was subclinical hypothyroid. And, um, you know, certainly for some people, iodine could be a part of the story where they do need to take an iodine supplement to recover their health. And, and taking an iodine supplement in, in the form of a multivitamin or a prenatal vitamin, that's generally been found to be safe yeah. for most people with Hashimoto's. Right. And that can actually improve outcomes. So, you know, just to, to kind of make a long story short, I would say the amount that's in a multivitamin, the amount that's in a, it's in a prenatal vitamin in micrograms, um, up to 300 micrograms is going to be generally very safe and very well tolerated by most. Um, on the other hand, when we get into the milligram dosages, that's when we can get ourselves into trouble with um, accelerating actually thyroid tissue damage. And um, my, my colleague and good friend, Dr. Matisse Karazian, has correlated um, some brain-related symptoms along with utilizing iodine, uh -huh. where um, perhaps some Hashimoto's antibodies can be um, cross-reactive with brain tissue and cause more brain inflammation when when um, the high-dose iodine is utilized. Ah, okay. I've, I've got to say, I've always been quite um, cautious on the high iodine doses that I've seen touted around somewhere. It really concerns me. Um, there's a, I, I often refer to a, a very um, interesting um, tete-a-tete. It's an argument, basically, between Dr. Guy Abrahams and Dr. Gary, sorry, Alan Gabby, 
um, in the Townsend letter for doctors regarding the doses of iodine that were in seaweed. And it's, <laughs> it's a really interesting thing for anybody to look up. But I've got to say for anybody, um, any clinicians out there looking who want to learn more about the research that you delved into, um, they need to read your first book. Is that right? And then the second book is really the how to do stuff, how to treat people. Is that correct? That's correct. The first book is very heavily research-based, and then the second book is protocol-based. So I've got protocols on how to find um, trigger. So if you have a person... Um, with these symptoms, you should test them for each pylori. These are the best labs to do, and these are the best treatment options that um, I found to be helpful and effective. So um, there's a little, I, I snuck in a little bit of research in this, in this second book. <laughs> I saw. Um, I couldn't part with it. <laughs> but I think it's much needed, um, but, it but it's needed, yeah. You know, you, you, people, prakis need to get the confidence to be able to say, aha, I get it now. And, you know... I, Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it sh- to me, it should be a seminal book. It is a seminal book. Um, uh, and I've got to say, along with Dr. Dadis Karazian, um, I think those two, you two authors, having your personal interest and Dr. Dadis Karazian having this overwhelming curiosity for when things go wrong and he just wants to help his patients, um, I think those two combined just get the best for practitioners. So I've got to congratulate the, you on those, your two books, but also him on his. Um, and I, I really implore practitioners to get your book. This is the Hashimoto's Protocol, 90-Day Plan for Reversing Thyroid Symptoms and Getting Your Life Back by Dr. Isabella, that's I-Z-A-B-E-L-L-A, Wentz, W-E-N-T-Z. Dr. Isabella Wentz, I thank you so much for taking us through some of the crucial aspects. And I say some because you really need to read the book. We could be sitting here talking for hours and still not get through it. So thank you so much for taking us through some of these aspects today on FX Medicine. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. It was a pleasure. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This podcast was brought to you by the book The Hashimoto's Protocol by Dr. Isabella Wentz. If you're loving our FX Medicine podcasts, please don't forget to share us with your colleagues, family and friends.